This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the May 30th, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and updates on the war from London, Algiers, Bern, Buenos Aires, Honolulu, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. The American campaign on Attu is rapidly drawing to a close. The Navy announces that the largest Jap force on the Aleutian Island has been annihilated, and Tokyo has already admitted final defeat there. The Allied air offensive has continued over Western Europe and the Mediterranean, and in North Africa, Generals de Gaulle and Giraud are meeting for the conference to unify all French Empire forces. In Russia, bitter fighting is raging in the Kuban region of the Western Caucasus. But now, for news of the air warfare and the campaign against the U-boat, Admiral Radio takes you direct to CBS London. John Daly reporting. Hitler, the architect of the fortress of Europe, forgot one thing. He forgot to put a roof on his fortress. That one factor, more than any other, will mean the destruction of Hitler's new order that was to last a thousand years. Yesterday, the head of Britain's bomber command, Air Chief Marshal Harris, said that the bombing Germany has had is chicken feed compared with what she's going to get as long as she persists in her aggression. Hardly had he spoken when the United States 8th Air Force and the RAF smashed into Hitler's fortress of Europe to prove it. In destructive raids announced last night, our fortresses and liberators struck at Saint-Nazaire, Rennes, and La Police in the greatest daylight blitz of the war. Hard upon the heels of our heavy bombers, the RAF last night found a new target in Germany. The new target is Wuppertal, home of giant IG Farben industry chemical plants and numerous other war factories. It has just been announced this minute that more than 1,500 tons of bombs were dropped on Wuppertal, starting tremendous fires. 33 bombers are missing from the raid. At the same time, in the one war arena in which Hitler has been able to boast of some success in recent months, the Battle of the Atlantic, the RAF Coastal Command got in a good stiff body blow. It was announced today that Coastal Command bombers have definitely destroyed five German U-boats in ten days. We have been told repeatedly in the last few days that the United Nations are winning the Battle of the Atlantic. Last night, even the Germans indirectly admitted it. One of Goebbels' ace spokesmen told the German people that the U-boat war is a permanent race between the development of weapons of attack and defense, 
and therefore ups and downs must be expected. That, said the German spokesman, is why our U-boats are not finding so many victims these days. Air Vice Marshal Joubert, Inspector General of the RAF, yesterday described the German armed forces as a three-legged stool. The Army leg, he said, was shaky. The Air Force leg cracked. And the U-boat leg as good as broken. You are all familiar with the Spanish and Axis propaganda campaign crying for an end to bombing on humanitarian grounds. Well, this morning, children were going to a Sunday school in a harmless small town on England's southwest coast when seven German fighter bombers flew in from the sea. They thoroughly machine-gunned the town, besides dropping bombs. All the children managed to come out of the raid alive. At least, it's thought they did. The humanitarians lost three of their fighter bombers before they got home. Now back to CBS New York and Doug Edwards. More news in just a moment. But first, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Our men of the Merchant Marine can tell you only too well how it feels when a thick blanket of fog closes in, particularly among the icebergs of the North Atlantic. It's a feeling of utter helplessness. Men on watch listen to the constant blare of the foghorn, hoping to catch warning echoes. At night, searchlights struggle to pierce the gloom. Speed is held to a snail's pace, yet at any moment may come the grinding crash of a ship striking an unseen iceberg. Such disasters with their loss of ships, cargoes, and lives will soon belong to history. For radar, built by Admiral, already performing so many miracles for America at war, will soon eliminate one of the greatest hazards at sea. Unhampered by fog, storm, or darkness, radar will detect icebergs in plenty of time to avert a crash. No blaring foghorns, no position-revealing searchlights need be employed. And best of all... American ships equipped with radar can safely plunge through fog at full speed. In turning out radar for Uncle Sam, Admiral workers are merely doing familiar tasks in a bigger, better way than ever. In peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers, today, radar is America's smart set built by Admiral. Now here once again is Doug Edwards. In the North African war zone, Allied bombers have again raided the Italian Mediterranean islands, and General de Gaulle is now meeting with General Giraud to complete arrangements for French unity. For a direct report on these developments, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Algiers' Winston Burdett reporting. At noon today, a Lockheed Hudson transport plane circled over a tiny airfield in North Africa. On the field were General Giraud, French commander-in-chief, various members of his staff, a guard of honor a battery of photographers, and a flock of correspondents. The plane taxied over to where everybody was waiting, and out of it stepped General Charles de Gaulle. At last, he was here. De Gaulle and Giro saluted, shook hands, and strode solemnly across the field to review the guard. The formalities were stern and simple. The two poker-faced generals rode back together to Giro's headquarters. And so, rather unobtrusively, the leader of the fighting French movement arrived in North Africa. Algiers is now the capital of fighting France. You may have heard that there's a ban on public demonstrations of any sort in North Africa. Nevertheless, around 4 o'clock this afternoon, several thousand Frenchmen just happened to be standing around in the park in the center of Algiers. They had heard that the goal was coming to lay a wreath on the monument of the unknown dead. Children climbed into trees to get a better view. And when the gold finally appeared, 
The crowd burst through the police cordon, flooded the park, shouted Vive la République and Vive de Gaulle. They really let go. A little later, General de Gaulle received the press. He spoke of the union of all French forces and of the new Central Committee, which is to be set up in order to realize that union. This committee, he said, must have three characteristics, and I quote him, it must be physically and morally capable of directing France at war. Morally, because it is important that the men with power should be worthy to lead. You know what I mean. Secondly, its power should be based on real French sovereignty. The Allies should be able to deal with men who are upright and proud. And thirdly, he said, the committee must act in harmony with the mass of the French nation. And he added, it would be impossible to build something with which the French people are not in accord. General de Gaulle spoke with the air of a man who knew precisely what he wanted. I return you now to CBS in New York. The increasing allied threat to what the Germans call their European fortress brings a variety of reports from within the enemy countries to the listening posts in neutral Switzerland. For a direct report, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Bern, Howard K. Smith reporting. While the Axis and its fighting friends in Madrid have this week suddenly discovered that air bombardment is inhuman, today in the mountains of Yugoslavia, German bombers have raised four undefended villages to the ground. The towns are in Montenegro. There were no soldiers in them and no anti-aircraft guns. The citizens didn't even have a rifle to defend themselves with. They just happened to be a part of the big territory the partisans have taken away from the Axis in Montenegro. On one of the towns, named Shabalyak, the Germans dropped 40,000 pounds of bombs, and that is 10 pounds of explosives for every person in town. The bombardments were undertaken as part of the Axis's new frantic offensive against the Yugoslav partisans to break their resistance before the United Nations can attack Europe. Today, the partisans have admitted that they have had to retreat before the German storm. The front on which they are fighting is about 100 miles long. It extends from just south of Sarajevo to just north of Albania. On the vast bottom of that front, the Germans, with tanks and bombers, took away from the partisans the important terminus of Kolachin, about 10 miles north of the Albanian border. The German base of operations against them, the partisan radio said, is the Montenegrin town of Plevolje. And they begged the Allies to send a few planes over Plevolje with bombs, preferably big bombs just to let the Germans know that the partisans are not the friendless peasants they sometimes claim to be. The partisans believe they can take any town or city in Yugoslavia with air support. Today, in fact, their forces stand just 20 miles outside the Italian port of Fiumi. In two years of guerrilla fighting, the partisans have carried offensive to within 10 miles of the Croatian capital of Zagreb and into the outskirts of Banja Luka. But each time, they've turned away from the big cities because they haven't got the bombers. They're hoping, though, that someday the Allies will send bombers. And if they do, the partisans think they can take their country away from the Axis with very little additional help. I now return you to New York. 
Next, for news of developments in South America, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Buenos Aires, Herbert Clark reporting. CBS Buenos Aires. President Ramon Castillo decided this week that the Argentine Congress should open its regular 1943 session on June 8th. That decision and the choice of the date are two more indications that Senator Robustiano Patron Costas will be named to succeed Castillo at next September's presidential elections. Patron Costas became the crown prince last February when Castillo picked him as a guarantee of the continuance of present policies. The presidential wishes have been respected by all factions of the conservative political machine. And Patron Costas will be formally named the rightest candidate on June 7th. Liberals had planned to choose their candidate on June 8th, but those plans were upset when Castillo selected the date as the occasion of his report on the state of the nation. Liberals, who are the majority in Argentina but are badly disunited, got together on an excellent pro-democratic, anti-totalitarian platform early this month. But they went back to bickering over candidates immediately, and the chances are dim today for the formation of a democratic union a sort of a popular front, to contest that election. We don't expect much legislative production from Congress this year, partly because attention will be fixed on the elections, and partly because liberals plan to spend considerable time asking Castillo to explain some of his actions. They want to know, for instance, why the government keeps constitutional guarantees suspended by the state of siege decreed in December of 1941, and indefinitely extended last December despite a congressional order to lift it. Castillo gave a partial answer, or rather a partial refusal to answer, this week when he sent a message to Congress asking for further extension on the grounds that individual liberties were dangerous, that the government's liberty of decision would be compromised if the people were free to criticize. This is Herbert Clark in Buenos Aires returning you to Columbia in New York. There is heavy fighting today on land and in the air at both ends of the 1,600-mile Russian front. The Germans are attempting day and night air attacks on Leningrad, and Moscow reports that Soviet fighters and anti-aircraft batteries have knocked down 20 enemy planes. At the same time, German guns have opened up on Leningrad, battering the city with shells. But the Russian defenders are reported to be answering shell for shell without budging from their positions. A few hours ago, the Navy announced another victory by our forces on Attu Island. For this news and other developments, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Washington, Lee White reporting. The bloody battle for Attu is over at last. According to a laconic Navy communique this afternoon, the Japanese made a suicidal counterattack on the right flank of our forces on the floor of Chichigoff Valley. Except for snipers, the communique reads, this enemy force was annihilated. On Friday, American troops had exterminated the last of the Japanese defenders of the mountain known as Fish Hook Ridge. Early this morning, the Tokyo Radio broadcast an official communique stating that the Imperial General Staff has been out of touch with its forces on Attu for more than 24 hours. It is believed, said Tokyo, that all officers and men of the Imperial Garrison died a glorious death for their country. According to Tokyo, the Japanese garrison numbered about 2,000 men. Again, according to Tokyo, our own forces numbered 20,000 men with superior equipment. What held us up so long was not the strength of Japanese resistance so much as the foul weather conditions which have prevented air activity on all but two or three days of the three weeks the campaign lasted. 
The Navy communique merely says that Japanese casualties have been high. But according to the German version of Tokyo's story, every last Japanese on the island has been killed. Disabled soldiers who were unable to participate in the last desperate counterattack are said to have committed suicide. Because of the gasoline shortage, there were sparse crowds at the Memorial Day services in Washington today. At 11.30 this morning, General Somerville placed a wreath on the tomb of the unknown soldier in the name of President Roosevelt. Now, while this program is going on, the American Legion is holding its annual service in memory of the dead of the First World War. By special permission of the White House, color guards and other officials took taxis or drove their own cars to Arlington Cemetery. But the majority of the Legionnaires presumably walked. An OPA ordered last night banned the use of private cars in driving to and from patriotic celebrations. Despite congressional opposition to food subsidies, the OPA has ordered a 10% rollback in the retail price of butter to become effective on June 10th. The average saving to consumers will be five and a half cents a pound. Rollbacks in the price of meat and coffee are expected shortly, and the total subsidy expenditure on these three items alone will come to $400 million a year. I return you now to New York. On the far eastern fighting front, Chinese dispatches say Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's troops have captured Yuyang Quan, which is 35 miles south of Yichang. This town has been a focal point in the Jap offensive up the Yangtze River toward Chungking. There was another air raid alarm in Chungking this morning, the second in as many days. But as yet, there is no indication that Jap planes attacked at any point in the province. And now, for an analysis of the new Japanese drive in China, here is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. It is not yet clear whether the Japanese offensive in the upper Yangtze Valley is really a major drive aimed at the Chinese temporary capital at Chongqing. Latest Chinese dispatches tend to play down this theory, but from other sources the situation is reported as potentially serious. Certainly in advance from Yichang, the Japanese base highest up the Great River, all the way to Chongqing, would be a formidable operation. The greatest difficulty would be that of supply. The river itself must be the main Japanese supply line. The railways would be of little assistance, since the Japanese do not control either the northern or the southern main lines, which reach the river at Hankou. An enormous number of river craft would be needed and would have to be kept in constant operation in order to supply a force which could hardly number less than 500,000 combat troops. Even if this could be done in theory, the front on which the Japanese would have to advance must be comparatively narrow. The farther the Japanese go from Ichang, the more their flanks will become exposed to Chinese attack. This has been the history of every Japanese attempt to advance from their present positions during the past two years. First comes initial success. As the powerful Japanese striking force moves out, close to its base and after thorough preparation. Then comes increased Chinese resistance as the Japanese get farther away from their bases. Finally, come Chinese attacks on the Japanese flanks and raids against their lines of communication. Invariably, this has produced the same result. The Japanese have had to fall back to their original positions or at least to content themselves with minor and inconclusive gains. It may very well be that this process is now about to repeat itself on a somewhat larger scale in the upper Yangtze Valley. However, a new factor, that of air power, may be introduced if the 14th U.S. Air Force, under General Chenault, 
can be reinforced. That was Major George Fielding Elliott. Out in Pearl Harbor, our fighting men are closely watching developments in the battle against the Japs to the north and the southwest. For a report on our heroes who have seen action against the enemy and who are looking for more of it, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. Once in a while, your correspondent is at Pearl Harbor on a bright morning when a submarine of the Pacific Fleet comes home to refuel, get more torpedoes, and let the officers and men stretch their legs a bit on solid earth. You never forget it. I watched such an arrival. Slowly the sub made its way through the entrance of Pearl Harbor and up toward the submarine base. It was no gala arrival. Only a few knew about it until she was there. But as she came up the harbor almost to a man... The civilian war workers who chanced to see her pulled up to a kind of respectful attention and then cheered her. Navy craft along her course paid quiet honor to her. No fanfare or tinsel of parade stuff here. It was more of a good-natured, bantering kind of greeting that fighting men give to other fighting men they respect. The sub came alongside and you could see the green sea moss on her. A sure indication of a long time at sea. On her deck were most of her crew grinning the sheepish grin that fellows wear when they come home after winning the state championship in football or basketball. These men had done well and they knew it, but they were trying their best to be modest and casual about it. The officers and crew who'd worn dungarees for days on end had broken out their store clothes. You could tell by the folds showing crosswise on the breeches that the cloth had been folded in lockers for quite some time. Some wore beards, others were carefully shaved. All looked healthy and well-fed, but a little tired. There was a kind of a band on the dock. Most Navy bandsmen are busy fighting somewhere these days, but somebody had rounded up a drum and a trombone, a few cornets, and a big bass horn. As the sub came alongside, they blared out anchors away in a way that did your heart good. Nobody said much until the sub tied up, and a group of officers from the sub base went aboard to congratulate the winning commander. Shoreside sailors were there to meet former shipmates on the sub, and they look admiringly at the pennants on the conning tower. Each sub that comes in shows its record by paintings on the ship's side or by pennants. This one had five pennants of blue, the white silhouette of the five Jap ships she'd sunk. Some were in the shape of merchant ships or transports, and some were undeniably replicas of Jap warships. The official greetings were over, and immediately everybody started yelling greetings from shore to sub and back again, and then something happened that made you feel good. Down the dock came a small truck and put a half dozen big mail sacks aboard. And right on that submarine deck, Uncle Sam distributed the mail to some of his boys who'd been many weeks, thousands of miles from any post office. Then the shore crew took over already, starting the work of overhauling, restuffing, refueling, and reloading torpedoes. And the submarine crew took off for a few days' leave, some still reading their mail. All except one seaman, and I heard him say to a shoreside buddy, Hey, Mac, lead me to the nearest telephone. I hope we had fun because it wouldn't be long before he and the other submariners would be off to sea again to hunt and be hunted. And when that time comes, he and the other subfighters are always raring to get underway. They have adventure in their hearts and they thrive on danger. I guess that's why they shoot down so many Jap ships. This is Webley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. I return you now to New York. In the Southwest Pacific, General MacArthur's flyers have carried out the greatest number of sorties yet undertaken in a single day. 
They ranged more than a thousand miles from Australia to bomb three islands in the small Sunday group. Off New Guinea, our Liberator bombers spotted a small Jap convoy, attacked it, and left a 5,000-ton transport smoking. Two small warships and three more merchant vessels were in the convoy, which was last seen at Hansa Bay, which is midway between Wewak and Madang. Another Liberator scored damaging near-misses on a 1,000-ton cargo ship, pulling six barges in the Banda Sea area, 700 miles from Darwin. And now, once again, here is Warren Sweeney with a message from our sponsor. How quickly can radar, built by Admiral, detect the presence and determine the range of an enemy ship or plane? Detection takes about as much time as it does to sweep the horizon with a pair of binoculars. Radar scans the sea and air with a focused beam of ultra-high-frequency waves that travel with the speed of light. When these waves strike a ship or plane, they bounce back, and thus the enemy is detected. But that's not all. Since these radio waves travel at a constant speed, 186,000 miles per second, the time required for them to travel to a reflecting surface and return provides a mean for determining the exact range or distance to the enemy target. Admiral Belt Radar translates this time into distance automatically, so it can be read much like the speedometer of a car. Thus, every move of the enemy ship or plane, as it approaches or retires, is constantly recorded before the eyes of the radar operator. Next week, Admiral will tell you how radar is helping to guard our coastlines against enemy attack. Another important assignment for this amazing weapon of war built by Admiral. Women of America, the WAAC is accepting enlistments today for the women radio operators, radio repairmen, and teletypewriter operators that are urgently needed by the armed forces to release men for active combat duty. Do your part in America's war for freedom by helping the WAAC and the Signal Corps get the message through. Go to your local U.S. Army recruiting and induction station today for full information. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. Warren Sweeney speaking. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater rigged a building in Chicago.